that song's a keeper, don't you think? Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's a good one. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Today we're going to be learning about how to strive to enter Christ's rest. And uh, a lot of people confuse when I speak about rest. They think I'm talking about sleeping, and I'm not talking about sleeping. I'm talking about rest. So no one nodding off today, okay? <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. My jokes never turn out very well. <laughs> Striving to enter Christ's rest. The title itself is taken from Scripture, but it, it almost seems like an oxymoron, right? It's two things that really don't go together. Striving and resting. And yet that's how the Bible describes it. That's how the Bible describes it. And so this is going to be a sermon where we learn how to do that. The main points are going to be very much directly from Scripture. And if you've ever read this passage before, I, I, I bet you probably came away a little bit bewildered <laughs> because it's a little bit difficult for us to understand, I, I think at least. But I'm going to try to straighten that all out, and, uh, and I believe today that we will have a better sense of what it means to be in Christ's rest and to strive to enter Christ's rest. And so in the book of Hebrews, we've learned a lot of things. We've learned that the theme is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than just about everything, right? He is better than everything. So there's no substitute for him. He is incomparable. He is glorious. He is awesome. He provides everything that we need. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all of our needs and we access salvation through him alone. Jesus is better than all of the prophets. You put all the prophets together and he's better than them. He's better than the angels. He's more mighty than the angels. He created the angels and so he is better than the angels. We don't place our trust finally in the prophets. We don't trust finally in the angels. We certainly don't place our trust in Moses either. Jesus is even greater than Moses. He is the one whom we must place all of our trust, right? Amen. All of our trust alone must only go to Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Hebrews, there's several warnings given, and we've already come up with two of those. One of them is not to neglect this salvation, lest you drift away from the faith. Not to neglect our salvation, lest you drift away from the faith. And we are not to harden our hearts to the gospel as the people of Israel did when they were in the wilderness. And they ended up being in the wilderness because they didn't have the faith to go into the promised land. And so God said, this generation will wander for 40 years until everyone has died off and then you will be able to go into the promised land. And he says, do not have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. So already in Hebrews, we've learned a lot of things. Jesus is better, and that this salvation that we talk about is serious stuff, right? It's serious stuff. God is not mocked. He's not, he is not in the least confused about our motives of why we might profess or make a profession of Christ. He knows what is genuine and true, and I think we can know what is genuine and true in our own life. The book of Hebrews, one thing it does not do is destroy the doctrine of eternal security, but it upholds it. It just happens to say that 
for us to be eternal and secure, we also must have a faith that perseveres in the faith. We continue on in the faith. And that's what Hebrews is saying. It's saying to these Jews who are thinking about going back to the Old Testament law, he is saying, don't go back that way. There is no salvation backward. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. You must turn away from the old way of living and turn toward Christ. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our scripture. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand as we read scripture today. Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 11. And uh, just pay attention to the word rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, thou shalt not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have of having the word of God in front of us, not only in this version, but we have so many translations which are available to us to glean every ounce of what you want us to hear from God's word. And so we thank you for that. But we do pray that you would help us to understand, especially in sections of scripture like this where we have to get the mindset of a Jew and understand what a Sabbath rest is and all those things that are in this section of scripture, help us to understand them, that we might be moved by them, but that we might be motivated by them, and that we might apply them to our everyday life, that we might glorify you in all that we do, and help us to strive to enter into Christ's rest. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. And so I, don't, I try not to hide anything in my sermon, so I usually give you the lesson right up front. The lesson is very clear, although it may take some uh, thinking about how we apply that in our life, but we are to strive to enter into God's rest. And sometimes I may substitute and say Christ's rest, but really they are the same thing. The word rest is used or at least referred to at least 11 times during 11 verses. So we know that this is an important part of this scripture. Are there other things that we could get out of this scripture? I'm sure that there are, but there are at least 
uh, 11 times that he mentions rest. And so I am going to focus upon that, how we are to strive to enter God's rest, which was part of the last section of the scripture that we read. And so I like to try to just try to clear things up in the very beginning by saying, first of all, that there remains for us, there remains for the people of God a Sabbath rest that has not been obtained by the people that this book has been written to, or at least most of them. And so I, I try to make things as clear as possible, so I think it's helpful to go back through this and identify the different types of rest that are mentioned in here, because there are se several different types of rest that are mentioned. And so if we have a clear perspective of, the, of them, maybe it's going to help us in the final run to understand what it means to strive to enter into Christ's rest. And so, first of all, there's the, the rest of God's rest after he created all things. We know that God created the world in six days and that he rested on the seventh. He created the whole universe, right? We say that so, I say that so quickly. But he, he created the whole universe, everything that is in it in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Now, why did he rest? Is it because he was exhausted? No, he wasn't exhausted. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He easily created the world in six days. But he rested from his creative acts. He still continued, of course, to be providential over this world, to govern it, uh, to work out his will. Uh, but he rested from his creative actions. That's spoken of in this scripture that we read here today. And then this was a pattern for us, right? God provided a day of rest for man on the seventh day of the week, on the Sabbath day of the week. It was for our benefit. It was for us to rest. We follow the example that he set for us. And so the people of Israel were very religious about observing the Sabbath day. And you know all the laws. You know they're not supposed to pick up a stick on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do anything practically on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus was condemned many times by the Pharisees for doing things on the Sabbath that they thought that he should not be doing. Of course, Jesus taught that it's okay to be merciful on the Sabbath. It's okay to love others sacrificially on the Sabbath. And so we have the rest that God rested after his creative act, which is a pattern for us to, to rest one day out of the week. And then also in this section of scripture, he speaks about the rest that Joshua offers by entering into the promised land. This is a rest that is physical in nature. It goes along with their conquest of the Holy Land and brings them to their earthly home. And so home is always a place of rest. Can you not just wait to get home you know, from a busy day? Maybe you've been out shopping. Maybe you've been taking the kids' places or grandkids' places, and you just want to come home and set up your you know, feet and rest a little bit. Well, that's what the promised land was supposed to be. Of course, we also know that in the beginning, there were 12 spies sent into the promised land, two of them, only came back and said, we can take this land. The rest of them, because of their unbelief, said, these people are giants. We cannot take this land, even if the Lord goes with us. And so that upset the Lord, and they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. 
And so they did not enter into this promised land rest, did they? But they died off. They, they fell in the desert. But there, there was a time eventually, 40 years later, where with Joshua, the people of Israel did enter into Cana and they did possess it and they did find rest. And so in Joshua 21, 43 to 45, we have this account that the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. None of all the enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all the enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so we, I hope I'm making this clear that the ones who followed after those who fell in the wilderness did enter into the promised land and they did experience a certain kind of rest, a physical type of rest. And even the work that they did of conquest was done by the Lord, right? Empowered by the Lord. So they did experience a certain kind of rest, a physical rest, but there's still a better rest to come, right? You're following me? There's a better rest to come, according to the scripture that we read today. Verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, this final spiritual rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so there still is for the people of Israel at that time and for us today, there is another rest for us to enter into, a better rest, a better rest than Joshua could offer in the promised land. This is the rest that is the true rest for our souls. I call it a spiritual rest, a soul rest. It's Christ's rest for us, rest that he offers to us, right? It's an eternal rest. Listen to Matthew 11, the command or the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And when we understand this, we understand that the burden for our salvation is solely upon Jesus Christ and not us, right? That's what, the, that's what this rest refers to. Jesus has paid the price, and we cannot pay a price. We cannot do anything to earn it or deserve it. And so to enter this rest, to enter Christ's rest, is to totally abandon any trust in our own works and or deeds as a means of obtaining God's favor or salvation. I hope you follow that. To enter Christ's rest is to totally abandon any trust in our own works and or deeds as a means of obtaining God's favor or salvation. It is recognizing that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for our salvation and we rest in his work. Amen? That's very good news, you guys. <laughs> so I hope you're getting it. That's very good news. That means that no, no work is required on our part, that the gift of salvation is a free gift. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work as Christians, right? And we'll get to that a little bit later in the striving part. We are to strive to enter into this rest. But 
the gift itself is completely paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3.5 says he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's by God's mercy and Christ's work on the cross that we are saved. Most of you know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of, of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Jesus, Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So much in that verse. We could spend a lot of time in that verse. But it says that we've been saved by grace, through faith, and it's not your own doing. This is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. We instead are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And if you really understand this verse and this concept of rest, it turns your whole life upside down, right? Because why should, why should a, a person who is offered a free gift ever want to do anything in obedience to Jesus Christ, there can only be one motive left, right? Love of God, joy of God, the love that he loved us so much that he gave us this gift. And so our works become properly motivated when we understand that we can rest in Christ, that he has finished the work for us. Verse 10 in our, the scripture that we read today emphasizes this as well. It says, for whoever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works just as God did from his. So there we have it in the, in the book of Hebrews, just like we have it in Ephesians and Titus, that it's Christ who's done the work, that just as God rested from his works of creation, we rest from our works of trying to gain God's favor through our good works. It just cannot be done. It cannot be done because we do them imperfectly, right? We do all of our righteous deeds even imperfectly. Isaiah speaks about that. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And that means that our works, even though we may start out with good intentions, always are conflicted with, uh, with improper motives and just not doing them the way that is pleasing to God. And so I am not putting down good works, right? <laughs> I am not putting down those works that we do based upon our faith and trust in Christ because we, we were created for, for those, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? We were created and worked in such a way that we were called to do good works. But we must do them in a proper way and with a proper motive. And resting in Christ always brings us back to the motive, I love God. That's why I want to do this. I love God. I love other people with the love that God has given me. So Christ's rest for us frees us from any attempt we might make to work for God's favor or to work for our salvation. And it only leaves a motivation for serving him of love. So we look at other scriptures, we look at point number two, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. 
The writer of the book of Hebrews, and I always want to say Paul, even though I don't know it's Paul, but if I make that slip, you'll probably understand. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, let any of you seem to have failed to reach it. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he's kind of looking ahead. He's looking at this congregation. He's looking at these people. He understands that some people have genuinely accepted the gospel, but there are some people who are still stuck in their works mentality, and they're thinking, Christ has left. Now, if I sin, I must go back and offer a sacrifice. I must do something, right? That's the way we feel sometimes when we sin against God. I must do something to make it up. And that is wrong soteriologies. That's wrong salvation, uh, the study of salvation. Salvation is by faith through grace alone. And so we can't make it up. But that's what these people, it's indicated in Scripture, are planning on doing. They were going back to Judaism because... They felt like Christ's sacrifice was not enough that they must add to the work of Christ. And of course, we cannot do that. We cannot do add to the work of Christ because it's already sufficient for everything it was intended to do. And so he says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, every time we see the word fear, we wonder, well, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that we need to be afraid of God? Well, I don't need, think we as Christians need to be afraid of God. But if you are not a Christian, if you are basing your trust on your works and your performance at the temple, bringing the sacrifices when you're supposed to bring those sacrifices in lieu of trusting in Christ, then yes, you should be afraid of what is going to happen to you. The Greek word for this, actually you probably recognize it when I say it, is phobiomai. But if you think of words like claustrophobia or arachnophobia, that word phobia literally means to fear. In this commentary it says, thus when the author uses this word in this sentence, he is doing more than merely reminding his, teacher, his readers to take precaution or to think these things through. He is strongly warning them to consider the terrible consequences of falling short of God's rest. To continue to depend upon your deeds for salvation will end in tragedy. Right? It will end in tragedy. He goes on, he says, This kind of fear is not anxiety or worry, rather is an attitude of awe and reverence, a sober appreciation for the holiness, power, and majesty of God which results in obedience. Jesus speaks of this kind of fear when he warns, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so this is a legitimate fear, <laughs> a, a, a literal something that people should be afraid of is that their destiny will not be with God in heaven, but it will be in a place called hell. And so we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to fall short of God's grace or of God's rest? What does it mean to fall, fail to enter into God's rest where you will not have peace and you do not go to heaven? Well, it means to not believe fully 
trusting in Christ. Chapter, verse two of this says, for the news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so it all comes down to what we know. It comes down to faith. But you ever notice in the book of Hebrews so far and in the Bible, a lot of places, the authors almost and sometimes do use faith and obedience as the same. <laughs> they really are the same, right? A true living faith is a faith like a coin with faith on one side and, and obedience on the other side. They're two inseparable experiences of grace is what our Baptist faith and message says. They're inseparable. They always go together. All true faiths result in obedience. All true obedience springs from a living faith. And so we're not talking about, as we did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a faith which fades away after a period of time. We're not talking about the faith in James where it's all blow and no go, so to speak. It's all talk and there's no action. There's no true uh, action from that faith. We're talking about a genuine faith comes from God, is a gift from God, which perseveres to the end of a person's life. Doesn't mean we're not going to have ups and downs. Doesn't mean we're not going to fall into sin of some kind. We all sin, right? But it does mean that we will live a faithful life <clears throat> to the end of our life and we will persevere. And so he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Well, how do you strive to enter rest? That seems backwards. Well, the word strive, I tried to do a little word study on it, see if it gave any glimpses, and it really just reaffirmed what the word strive means. You could put perseverance in there. You could put agonize. It actually comes from a Greek word which sounds like agonize, agon agonizomai. Uh, you could put the words never give up to enter that rest. I think the word strive means to strive. It means to work. It means to persevere even through difficult times. But why do we need to strive to enter rest anyway? And the reason we to strive to enter that rest is that we are continually wanting to go back to works, right? <laughs> There's something about our fallen nature, and for Christians, for those, we still have that old man that is living within us that we're trying to, through God's word, get rid of, but we still have a remnant of that old person in there who loves to contribute and loves the glory that we get from saying we contribute to something. That's really ultimately what it comes back to. We like that feeling. We like that feeling of contributing. You know, I don't know if you go out to eat very much, but invariably when you go out to eat, uh, someone will ask, oh, I want to buy your dinner today. And then you fight with them maybe for a little bit. And some people fight, you know, they just will not let you, <laughs> they, won't, they won't let you buy their dinner for them, you know, because they're maybe a little bit proud. They want the credit 
of buying something. And, uh, and so, you know, if someone buy, offers to buy my lunch, I may say, no, you don't have to do that. But then if they persist, I'll say, okay, I'll let you buy my lunch because, you know, they get a blessing out of that. They get a, I believe they get a blessing out of that. But we have a tendency, the whole point of that story is that we have a tendency to want to do our part, right? We want to do our part and we want to fall back into that. And so many times we do fall back into that. And when we fall back into that, you can usually tell a person's fallen back into that because the joy has left their uh, salvation experience. They've not lost their salvation, but they've lost the joy of that because we cannot measure up, right? We can't measure up to all the commandments and everything that God has asked us to do, the following of Christ. And ultimately, he breaks our will and he humbles us. And then we come back under grace and we understand it's only by grace. And so don't trust in your good works. They will fail us every time because we fail to do them perfectly and with perfect motives. We must have faith in Christ alone. We must persevere in the faith. Hebrews 4.3 says, for, the, for we have believed, enter that rest. It really is as simple as believing but believing has a little bit more meaning than what most people would give it. It means to obey. Believe to the point of obeying Christ. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All of these are parts of striving for that rest. Rest is where we want to be. Not in action, but we want to rest in Christ. So that we do not fall like the Israelites who did not have faith and did not obey. They fell in the desert. They never entered into the promised land. We are not to have hard hearts and resist the will of the Lord, but be obedient to him. Being obedient to him is part of striving to enter that rest. Paul does have words that I think are helpful here. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you get that? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. It's very specific here. We don't work for our salvation. But once we trust Christ and reach salvation, we are working that out in our lives, being conformed to the image of Christ. And it, that follow-up verse is really important too, verse 13, because it says, it is God who works in, to you, in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even the, even the working out of our salvation is by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul later on, he tells Timothy, his son, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace. That's the same thing as striving to enter Christ's 
rest. Will you strive to enter Christ's rest today? I believe this is a command for us as Christians as well. It's not just for those who have yet to come to Christ, but we have a tendency, as I said, to fall back into our old ways and want to be justified by our works. And we just cannot be that way. First of all, it robs credit from God. We want to give all glory and honor to Him, and so we recognize that we rest in the finished, His finished work on the cross. And so we'll have a time of response here as we close, but the time of response is what it always is, just to examine our lives in light of the Scripture. Am I resting in Christ? Or am I still trying to do this work of salvation in my own strength, so to speak? And if it is, it's simply a matter of surrendering that to God. You know, you can't do any work to get out of a works mentality. It's just resting in Christ and surrendering to Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank so much for the opportunity that we have here today to examine these words. And it's kind of a difficult section with all the references to rest. But I hope that we are clear that Christ offers a rest that was foreshadowed by these other rests. But it is the better rest. It is the superior rest. It is the eternal rest. It is a rest that is not based upon situations, but it's only based upon your work on the cross. And that work on the cross was complete and finished on the behalf of those who would believe. And so we thank you for that, and we surrender to that. We know that you want us to do things in this world to bring you glory and honor, and we pray that through understanding that you have done it all, that we would do those out of sense of love for you and a sense of love for others, that people might recognize us as your disciples because of the love that we have for one another. So we thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.